Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri. I'm your host, Eric Sintel, and in this episode, I am talking with Dr. Josh Packard. And this is an episode that anyone who works with youth, anyone who maybe parents youth, really should listen to. Even if you've never listened to a podcast before, I'm, I hope you're joining us to listen to this one because Josh gives us some great insights into how to connect and engage with Gen Z, with people aged about 13 to 25 currently. So Josh Packard is a sociologist. Um, He formerly taught at the University of Northern Colorado, and he is the author of Church Refugees, Sociologists Reveal Why People Are Done With Church But Not Their Faith. And you can find this book on Amazon. Um, You can also find this book through the Popper Bluff Library, um, if you're local to Southeast Missouri. Um, and through their digital um, component, Hoopla. And so if you have a library uh, membership at Popper Bluff Library, um, you can call them or go to their website and figure out how to get access to Hoopla, and you can get tons of great uh, eBooks and audiobooks and other things like that. That's actually where I read um, Church Refugees, and I highly recommend it. It's a really fascinating book. I wanna read the description of it. They're called The Duns. After devoting a lifetime to their churches, they're walking away. Why? Sociologists Josh Packard and Ashley Hope reveal the results of a major study about the exodus from the American church, and what they've discovered may surprise you. Church refugees aren't who you'd expect. Among those scrambling for the exits are the church's staunchest supporters and leaders. Leaving the church doesn't mean abandoning the faith. Some who are done with church report they've never felt spiritually stronger. The door still remains open, a crack. Those who have left remain hungry for community and the chance to serve, and they're finding both outside the church. Sifting through hundreds of hours of in-depth interviews, Packard and Hope provide illuminating insights into what has become a major shift in the American landscape. If you're in the church, discover the major reasons your church may be in danger of losing its strongest members and what you can do to keep them. If you're among those done with church, look for your story to be echoed here. You're not alone, and at last, you're understood. So I really enjoyed this book because um, it did resonate with a lot of uh, my experiences and things I've observed uh, for other people, and this um, also provided some constructive ideas and advice for what churches can do differently, um, how they can change some their structures and some of their approaches to try to keep these uh, quote-unquote duns engaged. And it's really important to note that we're not talking about people who are nominal Christians. We're talking about really devoted, really committed, really devout people who eventually decide that they need to pursue God more faithfully, more fruitfully outside of the church structure rather than inside it. So this is a really uh, sobering book and a very much needed book. And uh, Josh and I spend about the first half of our interview unpacking the major findings of that book. And then the second half of our interview, we talk about his more recent work with the Springtide Research Institute. Um, So with this institute, they are surveying thousands of people aged 13 to 25. And then going through all those survey data, interview data, and trying to figure out, okay, what what do these people need and how can we reach out to them more effectively? And so if you go to springtideresearch.org, then you can uh, read their blog, their different reports that they've put out, as well as get in touch with them. And if you sign up for their email list, you can actually get um, one of their more recent reports that Josh and I talk about in our interview. You can get that report for free. Um, You can also buy it through Amazon if you're like, I really don't want more emails. (laughs) So that's, I'm sure Josh would be fine with that. Um, they have some other free resources as well on their website, as well as some things that you know you have to pay for. Um, and so if you go to, again, springtideresearch.org, you can find all of that. And we, uh, Josh and I focus our conversation on this report, The State of Religion and Young People 2020. And uh, the report is uh, has a shorter title, Relational Authority. And so as we talk about in our conversation, this idea of relational authority comes from their findings from surveys and interview data that young people, um, they don't want 
adults or grown-ups to just be their friend and just have this relationship and give them no guidance or no expertise or no advice. Um, but they also don't want, and they're probably even more so, don't want adults and grown-ups to just come in with all this authority and this expertise and guidance and tell them what to do and not have any relationship. And so Josh finds that it's actually the balance of those two roles, having the relationship so they know you care, they know that you're interested in them as people, um, and then, but also sharing your experience, your expertise, your guidance um, when appropriate and in appropriate ways. Um, and so once you have that relationship, they become open to your authority. And so it's that combination, that relational authority that really creates meaningful relationships and provides um, necessary guidance to young people. And then though that mentoring, that mentoring tends to um, nurture their spiritual lives or at least provide a resource to nurture their spiritual lives and maybe keeps them connected to the community of the church. Um, so again, we spent our first half of our conversation talking about the Church Duns book, the Church Refugees book, and then the uh, second half of our conversation really diving into relational authority and what that looks like and how to create that in our relationships with young people. So I really hope that this conversation will be helpful to you and useful to you in working with youth or relating to your kids, relating to other people's kids, um, and, and really recreating those uh, healthy, productive, fruitful relationships with young people. Okay, without any further ado, let's talk to Josh. All right. Um, so Josh, could you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your academic background and also your faith journey? Yeah, you bet. Um, so I, uh, I grew up Lutheran because my dad lost a coin flip at the dining room table. And uh, so I ended up going to church with my mom instead of the Catholic church with my dad. And, and that uh, set off a series of events, I guess, that ended up with me at Texas Lutheran University for an English major before getting a sociology PhD from Vanderbilt, um, where I basically spent uh, even for the very beginning of that program, uh, was really interested in organizations, but in particular religious organizations. And that has, uh, that focus has informed most of the work that I did as a scholar. I spent about 15 years in higher ed uh, between a couple of different jobs, most recently at the University of Northern Colorado, where I just wrapped up my last year as a professor uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so I'm no longer a professor, which is a very strange thing for me to say uh in terms of just identity wise sure um and instead now i'm the full-time executive director at springtide research institute and at springtide we we focus on the the, the faith and spiritual and religious lives of 13 to 25 year olds really drilling down into where they make meaning in their lives where they find meaning in their lives um how they engage with life's biggest questions and as anybody who pays attention to religious trends knows increasingly that is just not happening in traditional institutions for young people, especially, uh, they're just not turning to churches and mosques and synagogues to do that work. And our job is to go in and figure out where they're doing that work and, and figure out what we can learn and help bridge the gap between where they're at and, uh, the religious leaders that want to connect with them and help guide them, you know, along their journey. So I'm really excited about that work. The sort of thread that runs throughout all of it is the sociology. It's, it's applied sociology for me from the beginning of my graduate school experience up until now. Um, and it's a, it's a passion of mine and what a, a perspective that I really think the, the world is sort of missing. Sure. Yeah. And it occurs to me that it might be helpful to define sociology as a field for our listeners. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. So, uh, and you know, most people sort of walk around the world um, trying to make sense of it using just what we would call a sort of psychological understanding. That is to say that, you know, anybody that you encounter acts or behaves in a particular way because they have made an individual decision to act or behave in that way. We, and uh, this is not to say that that isn't true. Uh, people are certainly individuals who make their own choices, but the, the sociological perspective is the sociology is the science or study of groups and uh, takes this takes this account or this perspective that the context that we're in, the organizations we're part of, the groups that we identify with, that these have a big influence on uh, constraining what we call the likely choices that somebody will make. So at any given moment, of course, you could choose to do anything, but you're only likely to choose to do one of a few things, right? Um, 
And so our job as sociologists is to really figure out what those patterns are. How do groups constrain our choices and enable some other ones? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, like growing up in America, um, especially in you know rural Missouri, I'm probably not going to become a Muslim, right? You know, it is, high, it is not impossible, but it is highly unlikely. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so studying those those group dynamics and those trends and patterns, you know, makes sense of that or helps make sense of that. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, good. So uh, about, what is it, four or five years ago, uh, you wrote and published the book Church Refugees. Um, and so I want to read a, a quote from that. Um, so you... Church refugees, you interviewed a group of people, a pretty sizable group of people who had been very devoted and committed to their churches and then left their church communities. Um, and you found uh, four big reasons why. Um, they wanted community and got judgment. They wanted to affect the life of the church and got bureaucracy. They wanted conversation and got doctrine. They wanted mean, meaningful engagement with the world and got moral prescription. And another key quote from that same page uh, that I really like, people who had virtually nothing in common other than their decision to leave organized religion ended up telling remarkably similar stories centered around these four themes. Um, and so I, I would like to ask you to unpack each of those, and maybe we can start with the, the first one, of course. They wanted community and got judgment. Um, could you explain that or unpack that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, you bet. So um, this was, uh, you know, when we talk about, church refugees or the duns as the as we sort of coined them it's these are people who left the church but kept their faith um as opposed to the nuns people who either didn't grow up in the church or left at some point one of the two but they don't have their faith they no longer affiliate or identify with a religious tradition anymore hence the term nun um we kept hearing that there was a sort of other group that existed out in the world and they kept using the term when i would sort of be out and about working on other projects. Like if I'm just done with this. I'm done with this institution. I'm done with this sort of organized religion part, but they weren't done with their faith. And um, that's what sort of set us out on this journey of like, well, let's figure out what we can learn about this group. Now they're a hard group to access because, you know, because they don't go to churches anymore, it was sort of, uh, they don't have a term or an organizing body. Um, so we were able to recruit about a hundred people to, to just do, what a lot of good social scientists do at the beginning, which is to take a qualitative approach, meaning um, we know that the, we know that with a hundred people, you're not representing uh, statistically the entire country or anything like that, right? But it gives you a place to start theoretically to understand this group of people that actually exists um, in the world. And it turned out that the themes that emerged from those hundred, I think by the time we finished the whole study, it was like 130 interviews was um, really around these tensions that, so we talk about wanting community, but getting judgment. Well, the if you think about how those two things play against each other, it's, it's all, one is sort of, they don't, they're not opposites, but one is sort of antithetical to the other. So if you feel like you're being judged all the time by the people around you, that inhibits your ability to participate with that group of people as though you are in full community with them. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's the it's a really important to understand that that particular dynamic there. That again, these aren't opposites on the spectrum, but one makes the other one impossible. The presence of one makes the other one impossible. And in particular with community and judgment, what happened is that what people were telling us was, you know, they they really wanted a place where they could bring their, their full selves um, to the group and particularly to, to their religious community. But they kept getting often, uh, they kept getting this judgment that would, that would keep them from being able to do that. Now we're not talking about judgment in the, in the like, um, you know, God, there's a God who will judge you at the, you know, at the end of days or something. Some people believed in, in that, kind of God, some people did not, that was fine. What they were talking about was that it was the community members themselves who were judging not, uh, you know, your actions to be right or wrong or your identities to be uh, acceptable or unacceptable. And, and that largely that permission to do that or even the modeling of those behaviors was coming from religious leaders. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not even it was necessarily true all the time, it was felt to be true that this was not a safe place to admit when you had screwed up, even if you knew it, 
um, or even have a difference of opinion that you didn't think was necessarily screwing up. There were just things that you could and could not share um, in this particular space. I, it's it's it, what our respondents told us is that it's really difficult, if not impossible, then to have a fully flourishing um, faith life if you can't share all the things that are going on in your life. And what I think is actually sort of counterintuitive about that is that it it also inhibits the ability to have a group to which you feel accountable. Mm. And, and so I think a lot of times what's happening is that these groups are doing judgment because they see that as accountability, um, but because they're not listening to the full story in the first place, or because they're stepping in in a place that isn't, that ha- where that judgment hasn't been asked for or invited, um, it actually means that they don't get to be that accountability group that I think they're trying to be. If we're if we're sort of giving the most grace possible to that interpretation of judgment, we can maybe twist that into thinking like, well, I think they just really want to hold you accountable to the standards that you say you set for yourself, or the group does. Um, and that was this like critical barrier for for a lot of people between like we would just get to this moment where they couldn't experience God anymore or any deeper or any further because God for them was revealed through community. And if they couldn't access community, then that meant that they couldn't access God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I remember um, in your book, you really emphasized that when these quote unquote dons leave organized religion, the first thing that they recreate is some kind of community. You know, they find some kind of group or some kind of organization they can work with or be a part of. Um, so, yeah, I, I would agree. That's really crucial. Um, let's see here. The The next point was uh, they wanted to affect the life of the church and got bureaucracy. Um, people who have been involved in church leadership probably resonate with that um, universally. People who have not maybe need that to be explained a little bit. So so what, are, what were some of the responses uh, from your participants in the study about wanting to affect the life of the church, but instead getting bureaucracy. Well, I, and you're right. I think you hit, you hit this uh, nail right on the head that it's this, this might, this might be a little inside baseball for some people who have never, you know, tried to get anything done in a, in a church or been in leadership. But what we found with a lot of the duns is that, they were really among some of the most active members of a congregation. Um, so they had a lot of opportunities then to bump up against this particular tension. And so we call this the tension between activity and bureaucracy mm-hmm. and that they, they were really committed to um, a lot of things that churches are ill-suited and structurally to set up or I mean, like they wanted to get things done. They wanted to move quickly. They wanted to respond to needs in the community. And, um, you know, for reasons that we can dig into, if you want, the churches just aren't structured that way. They they often are a a pretty vertical hierarchy, meaning that they they ascend real quickly to one singular point of power with a with with often one person or a very small group of people at the top who are the only ones along that chain who have any real decision making authority. Um, that's not universally the case. There you know there are exceptions to that rule, but that is a lot of the structure that. Uh, that that exists in the world of Christianity um, and that these our respondents are running up against. And so to get anything done, you know, it, it became almost like a value proposition, which was like, wait, I, I want to do this thing that I think is a no-brainer, good idea and good for the world. Why is it so hard? Why, why is it so much easier to do this outside of the church than it is to do it inside of the church? Mm-hmm. Um, the and, and as one of our um, as, as one of our respondents said, so we would rather spend time doing than spend time believing. If that makes any sense, at the last church I went to before this one, they just seemed to put up more and more walls and barriers, and it got to the point that just to have a simple meal in the church with some friends or a Bible study, we had to go through three committees. It just wasn't worth it anymore. You know, because you start thinking about like in that most immediate sense, like oh, if I want to have people for dinner, if I want to have a Bible study, like that is all of a sudden that's a lot easier to like we can do that work at outside of the church we don't have to go to the church to do those things why and and why is that and why should that be so much harder than just doing it on our own yeah Um, and that sense of bureaucracy sort of uh, you know it's not sense of bureaucracy that that existence of bureaucracy is pretty pervasive so as 
you know, the, the, the sort of lifespan of a done is not usually getting frustrated at one place and leaving. I mean, I think we only heard a few cases of that. It's usually that there are multiple stops along the way before finally saying like, oh, the problem isn't me. The problem is a structure that I keep running up against. Um, and they would find this sort of bureaucratic stumbling blocks to, uh, to doing meaningful work here regularly, I mean, across the board yeah. um, before they would opt out. Yeah, I I think that I resonate with that. I know a lot of people probably resonate with that. That you know, it's not just this one thing. You know, it's it's not like uh, Duns just decide at the drop of a hat, but it's more of a pattern right. that develops. And then and they as they see that pattern and experience that pattern, it you know becomes like you said easier to just do this outside of the church structure. Um, and that example of you know having a small group and a meal and stuff stuff like that that makes a lot of sense um so the third finding was they wanted conversation and got doctrine um so what does that mean well this one is actually i think maybe the most straightforward um to understand the anybody who's worked especially with young people knows intuitively that you know you can tell you can tell people what what you want them to hear all day long but the way that people process information um the way that they expect to make sense of the world has changed they expect to be in conversation that is how they make sense of the world as one of our respondents said it's in relationships and conversations that i find god so the notion of like a statement of faith as being the barrier to entry into a community, you know, you must sign on to these things before you can even get access to us. Um, well, well, first of all, it's not true. I mean, there's other studies out there that show that most people sitting in a, con in a, in a particular congregation don't even know what's a statement of faith is, let alone believe in it, but that's a whole different thing. Um, it, it's that we're, you know, we so often approach theology or questions of meaning and religion as as like which who has the best right answer and and then subscribing to that but that's just not where the world is anymore it the world is conversational and and the, at its worst this is like super incongruent with the ways that people are increasingly spending all of their lives i mean look you go to the doctor now and the doctor who has a medical degree and some years of experience and maybe even came to you on referral from friends and family you don't even take the doctor's word for what the doctor says. You immediately Google it and go to WebMD, and then you probably find out that you have cancer in your broken toe or whatever the thing was, because that's <laughs> like all roads at WebMD seem to lead to cancer. Um, you ask your friends and family who have had similar diagnoses, like what they're going to, you know, what they did or would do if they, you know, had to do it all over again. And you listen to your doctor and you talk to your spouse. You know, that's just we make all of our decisions in conversation this way. We we don't default to experts, but the church is still largely centered around this singular model of expertise, whether that singular, you know, that singular expertise comes from a particular person, like a founding pastor, or if it comes from some leadership body inside of a denomination, it's still a singular point of expertise. What so often happens, though, is that that, uh, that becomes then this like litmus test of whether or not you believe. So any question or any conversation that strays from those things is is taken or seen often as a lack of faith or a weakness or something like that, as opposed to um, the way our respondents often characterized it was, which was uh, a further exploration of the divine or mm -hmm. of God or of religion. Um, and that's, you know, if, if every time you ask a question, you you know you get a solid answer instead of a, a question in in return or a curiosity in return then it, that very quickly becomes not really a relationship that's just you know like feeding things into an answer machine um what is one of our respondents i can't remember if this is in the book or if this is uh this came out afterwards but one of our respondents is you grew up catholic said um and then and then switched over to protestantism um said, you know, growing up, we could always ask any question we want, as long as it was one of the ones on the pre-approved list. <laughs> that was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of churches um, and faith traditions function like that in practice. Um, and, you know, to me, I can easily see how uh, 
wanting community and getting judgment and wanting conversation and getting doctrine can feed off each other, you know, because maybe you ask a question or throw out a different idea um, or share something you learned from a Bible study or book or podcast or what have you. And then if the response is, well, no, this is the right answer to that. And it's like, well, you know, I want to talk about this a little bit. No, no, this is the right answer to that. You know? <laughs> and then you feel judged, you feel unsafe. It's like, well, I can't have conversation. I can't have community here. I just need to keep certain thoughts to myself. Um, I, I rem think I remember one person uh, in your study that you quote in the book basically saying that I learned there were some, some things I just needed to keep my mouth shut about. And that's obviously not going to be a good environment for someone to pursue their relationship with God. Um, and so the sure, yeah, so especially especially not. I mean, it treats faith like it's static as opposed to dynamic, right? That it, yes. it, as though you know, once you make a decision, whatever that you know, whenever that decision happens to be made, I mean, it could be as early as thirteen or something like that. Then is who you are for the rest of your life, and you never shall waver, which is just not true. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, like especially for teenagers, like it's just not true. Definitely. Yeah, and so the, the last major finding uh, from church refugees is that they wanted meaningful engagement with the world and got moral prescription. Um, so what does that look like? Well, the, the way that a lot of our respondents would talk about it is it's almost, it, it feels a little bit like picking and choosing, that there were, there were certain moral positions, and I'm, I'm using moral here in, a, in, in air quotes, um, that were policed very heavily uh, to the detriment of almost everything else. And, and that really just didn't make a lot of sense. Now, you can imagine, of course, what these are. This is gender, this is sexuality, this is um, pornography and, and drinking to some extent consuming alcohol. Um, but it, these weren't always the issues that seemed to matter. Um, and it's certainly not an exhaustive list of issues that, that Christians, uh, our entire sample here is Christian, that Christians should be caring about uh, according to their teachings. So um, as our, one of our respondents said, preaching a message about the evils of drinking seemed like so much small change compared to big ticket items such as poverty, racism, and gender inequality. Um, one of our other respondents said, I went to church because I thought I could do some good there that I couldn't do alone, which is a great reason, by the way, to, to join up with an institution or to affiliate with one. Not to come home angry because they said my friends would burn in hell for who they loved while they debated how much money to spend on the new church parking lot. Afterwards, um, you know, one of our respondents was, was talking, I'm not, this is one of the respondents we had after we published the book was, uh, I'll paraphrase here, was saying something to the effect of, um, you know, how is the same church that didn't get slavery right in the beginning going to lecture me about gender equality now? And I think that these are real questions um, that are, um, I don't know the answer to these questions. I mean, these are, you know, how, how can you, you know, authentically say you're engaging with the world when, uh, you know, like that one person said, like, you're condemning her friends to hell while you decide how much money to spend on the parking lot and, and i think these are in some ways these are the most divisive um kinds of and, and the most angry levers and understandably so they just see a church that is not and consistently they encountered a church that was just not particularly engaged with the world except on some very very specific issues and sometimes some overtly small issues but not not willing to go that same distance for for other issues like racism like sexism etc mm -hmm. and i mean you know even in my own work as i've been as i sort of do this the work that i do at springtide now or when i was going around and talking about church refugees right after it came out and um i would hear so many people talk about the breakdown of the family um they would ask me questions about if the breakdown of the family has contributed to the decline in membership and church going and stuff like that. And I think this gets us into the, a little bit of that sociological, psychological perspective. And I would point out to them, you know, real wages in this country for middle-class earners have not really moved that much since the early 1980s. Um, and in many cases, you know, a lot of those jobs, the middle class has sort of shrunk, which has forced more two working adults per household, whether those are you know, married or cohabitating or whatever. Um, and as you can imagine, like this leaves very little time, very little energy for people to, to engage with 
worship on a regular basis on Sunday mornings for Christians uh, or, you know, Wednesday night youth groups and those kinds of things. But I don't see the church by and large in this country, like taking up the mantle for, um, you know, you know, more support for uh, working mothers or for paid uh, parental leave when people have children or uh, a minimum wage at $15 an hour, any of the kinds of structural issues that would return families potentially to a state of, of having that, that sort of extra time and energy. And so those are the kinds of things that I'm talking about uh, and I think show up in this chapter where it's like, Y'all like y'all talk about morality, but it's really just these few issues. It's it's not you're not really doing the the sort of this big scope meaningful ministry about these other issues that that desperately matter to us. Um, and so they find other places to do that work. Yeah, I think the um, family issue is a great example. You know, so so what I hear you saying is. Um, religious duns they want the church or their faith community to engage with the world in a meaningful way like you know we want uh, to really throw our support behind a $15 an hour minimum wage or behind universal pre-k or you know some kind right. of national child care or something because we want families to be strong but instead of that, it, they just say we want families to be strong. <laughs> they just say they just say that you you parents should do more work and do a better job of bringing your kids to school or yeah. bringing your kids to church. Yeah, sure. that's what they say. Yeah, and, and, I, and I find well, I've not looked into the research here, I and mean, that was certainly that that would be their feeling. I it it seems fairly true to me, you know, in terms of the. Uh, in terms of what I've seen, you know, in terms of how I've heard those arguments play out. I mean, lots and lots. I get that question a lot about the the sort of demise of the family. And my return question is, what what is your church doing to structurally help families thrive? You know, and I, and I know that they're like, look, every church you go to in this country, if there's a family who shows up on their doorstep who needs help, they're going to help them. I mean, this religious people are incredibly generous and charitable and hospitable in this way. But that doesn't solve the structural issue that they are talking about. Um, and, and that's just one example of, I think, the kinds of things. I mean, you can get the wrong impression from this chapter by sort of just uh, thinking that all of the respondents here, like they disagreed with the church's teachings about homosexuality or they disagreed with the church's teachings about gender equality. But that's not the case. I mean, we interviewed people across the spectrum here. They're perfectly fine also with sitting in pews with people with whom they disagree. It was really that sort of picking and choosing of like, we're going to focus on these three issues, but not those things. And we're going to disregard our past where we got it blatantly wrong before. And we're going to pretend like those days never happened. We're certain that we have it right right now. Like that whole mixture uh, was just a little bit more than than uh, what they could take. Sure. Yeah. And that was uh, something I definitely wanted to mention is, as you point out in the book, you know, we're not talking about people who are, who decided, oh, I just want to live however I want to live, or I, you know, I want to feel free to sin or to, to live a certain kind of lifestyle. Like these are very devout people, very moral, ethical people who have no intentions of, you know, just throwing all of their morals away. But like you said, mm -hmm. they just found that there was this certain toxic mix of, you know, questions not being welcomed, uh, conversation being shut down, picking and choosing which issues to really emphasize. And, um, you know, and, and creating kind of a sense of judgment. Um, so it all just, like you said, it became becomes a little bit much for many people. Um, so maybe, you know, this, I hadn't really planned to ask about this, but it, it just popped in my head. Um, why do people stay in churches? It's a really great question. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, increasingly they're not. Um, the the data have been on this downward trajectory for attendance now for years. Gallup just uh, released data to show that fewer than half of Americans now belong to a mosque or synagogue or a church. Uh, that's the first time that's ever happened in over a hundred years or something. Um, the the thing that does keep people there is the same thing that sort of drives most human behavior, which is community. It's the, the search for your tribe, the, the people, the groups that are going to sustain you. Um, we are social creatures. And uh, 
community is both the sort of cause and consequence of all of those things. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree um, that, you know, the community is the key and, and a lot of these other things that are driving people away from church that we've discussed, you know, seem to actively work against community. Um, and so, mm-hmm. yeah, so, um, so to like to sum up maybe a takeaway for churches, you know, like what having thought about all of this and, and read Church Refugees, everyone should go read Church Refugees. It's a great book. Um, what's a takeaway that churches uh, could apply? Sure. Uh, so years ago when I was doing my dissertation work, um, I sort of had this like running hypothesis in my head that, that turned into like a mantra, which is um, if you have a, if your church exists, um, you know, in a neighborhood, let's say, and could be picked up and moved to another neighborhood without missing a beat, you know, you would continue to move forward doing all the same things that you've been doing. The same people would come, you know, you'd experience very minimal disruption. Then your church is probably primed for failure. It's just probably not going to last. Um, I would, and lately I've been thinking about that claim, which I think has largely been, if you look at the places that are thriving, aside, we're going to leave megachurches aside here for just a second, um, because megachurches largely thrive in most cases, the research shows by stealing, or I don't want to say stealing, but getting people who used to go to other churches, they're not making new converts, mostly. Um, so they appear to be thriving, but the people who are thriving in the sense of like engaging and invigorizing, and in some cases, uh, um, evangelizing to other groups of people, I think that's largely been shown to be true, that being really contextual and really embedded in your physical location um, is a pathway to success. But I've been thinking about it because I think that 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 needs to be updated. And so now I would say, you know, if you have a group of people coming to your church and tomorrow morning, all those people could leave and be replaced with other people and your church would go on and continue to do things without missing a beat, then I would say you're also primed for failure. That we have to, we just have to get to a place, if what we're going to do is be relevant and meaningful to people's lives and really create community, then we have to get so down and dirty and contextual and embedded in their daily lives with them that, um, the, the the church you know is and is it is its members it com- everything it does reflects the people who are there that the pro- the programs would fundamentally look different if people if if this group of people left or if we moved it to a new location that it reflects the values and sensibilities and the um, needs and desires of those specific people and right now it's just for a very long time uh, you know maybe from the 1950s up until you know, the end of the century, uh, into the early 2000s, that that just wasn't necessary. You know, you could just be a really strong and well-run institution and people would be drawn to you. And, and I think that worked for very, it's not that it's not that, that model was bad. It's that the world changed around churches and churches have just been a little bit slow to respond, to move towards that more deeply embedded and uh, local context that's needed. Yeah, yeah, very well said. Um, so that's a, probably a good segue into the Relational Authority Report. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the research behind that and, and what the main findings were? Sure. So Springtide uh, Research Institute, um, so it's, we're relatively new, just a couple of years old. Uh, focus, of course, is on the faith lives of 13 to 25-year-olds. And every fall, we put out the state of religion and young people. And Last fall, we did the State of Religion and People 2020. Um, the focus was all on this model of relational authority. Um, this coming fall, we've, we've got other reports that we put out too, but um, this coming fall, the, it, we'll be doing work around uncertainty and how to help young people navigate uncertainty. Um, but relational authority emerged from, you know, we were asking young people all kinds of questions about their faith lives, uh, both their practices, but also their uh their beliefs and their identities. Um, and what emerges was this general sense of like how to have influence um, in the life of a young person. The, talking about how like old models don't work in a new world, this old model of just sort of like expertise driven authority where 
you know, for example, in my in my the field I'm coming out of, like I could just stand up in front of the room and say, I'm Dr. Josh Packard, I'm your professor, and all my students would automatically listen to me. I mean, that's that was me when I was a college student. You know, <laughs> I didn't even ask for credentials, right? Like I just assumed that whoever was standing in front of the room was the person who was supposed to be teaching and had some expertise, and I would have done more or less probably whatever they asked me to do as long as it was reasonable. Uh, and that isn't how my students have been treating me for the last, I don't know how many years, and it's certainly not how young people engage with adults in general. And, and what we were able to find was, you know, I sort of thought what young people were going to tell us, and this is over the course of 10,000 surveys and 100 interviews that we did just in 2020 alone, it thought that young people were going to tell us, like, basically some version of like, I want adults to, to be okay with whatever it is that I'm going to do. I want them to condone or give their blessing to all the things I want to do anyway. Um, and I was really surprised to hear them say very explicitly, I, we do not want adults to be our friend. We have plenty of friends. Our friends are great, but they also cause a lot of drama. Like I want adults to be coaches, mentors, teachers, guides. Like I want adults essentially to be adults. And so what that meant was they, they really, you know, as we dug into that and, and really got that unpacked a little bit into these five dimensions of relational authority, it meant that expertise does matter. They, they want expert guides in their lives. And in fact, they desperately need expert guides in their lives because they're 16, 17 years old. I mean, <laughs> I was just surprised that they recognized it, right? Um, but really critically, that expertise didn't it, it wasn't going to be heard. It wasn't going to be accessed unless it also came with these other four dimensions, which are transparency, integrity, um, uh, and care and listening. And, you know, so this model emerged where it's like, okay, yes, you need to do some of these friendshipy kinds of things, the listening, the being transparent, the care, but you also have to do some of these like traditional authority kinds of things, these expertise things. Which is really, I think, what, the role that most adults are actually more comfortable playing in the lives of young people, which is telling them what to do, right? Um, telling them how to believe. Don't date that girl. You shouldn't major in that thing. You should work harder. Like, you know, these are the kinds of things parents have been telling to kids for years. Um, the, what the relational authority model, though, uh, provides is sort of like a point, a, a way to access your ability to be able to say those things and have them land with some weight in the life of a young person. Because they were also very, as much as they were clear that they don't want adults to be their friends, they, they were also equally clear that if you show up in their lives and start telling them what to do, you know, it might make you feel better because you'll feel like you've said the right thing, but it will have no impact on them if you're not doing listening, listening, integrity, transparency, and care to go along with it. Yeah. So by transparency, what did, what did the youth in the sub survey, what did they mean by that? Yeah, it's a really great, you asked me about the trickiest one right away. <laughs> um, I think because transparency is the hardest one because I, a lot of times we we tend to forget in our culture this really key phrase, which is age appropriate. We you know, we, we have this tendency to want to bucket things into do this, don't do that, really black and white. But transparency requires a lot of judgment. So what young people wanted, um, what goes a long ways towards rebuilding the trust that they don't have for institutions, that they don't have for titles or credentials, but they do have for people, is you sharing something about your life that is the same or similar to the struggle that they're going through. So, you know, if they're like coming out of the pandemic, they feel, you know, a lot of them lost connections with people. They might've felt very lonely and isolated. Um, you can share as an adult and as a way of building trust with that person, that young person that you're talking to, how you also felt lonely and isolated at times, vulnerable during the last year. Now, of course, we can't share the same things with a 14-year-old that we share with a 24-year-old. And that's what I mean by that, like that judgment comes in about deciding what is age appropriate. And, and there are some things that, you know, there are some 15-year-olds that won't trust you unless you share really sort of sophisticated things with them because they've seen a lot more than some other 15-year-olds, um, not always in great ways. And so they'll sort of, like, it won't pass the smell test for them if, if, you're, if you're just saying, like, oh, you're too young for that, right? Um, but establishing that transparency is, is uh, or, or practicing that transparency with them helps to establish you as um, somebody who's not just a taker, but a giver too, and that you are really trying to connect with them. It's, 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 a, it's a critical part of forming bonds of trust. Yeah. 
I would agree. Um, and I think that's such good guidance, you know, to be, to relate your experience to their experience, but also in an age appropriate way and in a person appropriate way, you know, like you said, yeah. you know, one 15 year old might be more, um, savvy of the world than a 20 year old in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and then see care and listening and integrity. What, what did they mean by integrity? Uh, two things primarily, um, admitting when you're wrong, <laughs> which is not a role that adults typically are very good at. Uh, and, and especially when it comes to religion, like that's just not a thing that religious leaders who are adults want to feel very comfortable doing with especially young people. Um, but admitting when you're wrong and then doing what you say you're going to do, uh, you know, and, and these two things go hand in hand here for integrity, because sometimes you can't do what you said you were going to do. You know, you, you promise that you'll come to the band concert, but there are other things that get in the way and you just can't go to the band concert. So you need to own that. Um, you need to own that, admit that you were wrong, uh, apologize for it and, and be sincere. Um, and that's, you know, that kind of integrity demonstrates not an equal playing field because again we're, we're we're not talking about putting you know adults on the same playing field as young people they don't want that you don't want that but it indicates that you respect the relationship in the same way that you would any other and and that's a point of equality that is young people just told us over and over again that they do not frequently get from adults that they they, they typically feel as like their relationship with them is secondary or third or fourth to you know so many other things in their life yeah yeah, that, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, my son is six and, you know, I try to own up to my mistakes and my overreactions as a parent. And Yeah, um, <laughs> I've got an 11-year-old, I'm right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and I hope that makes uh, an impact. You know, I hope that makes a difference in our relationship as we continue to, you know, evolve as parent and child. And um, and so then care and listening, what, what demonstrates care? Obviously, um, you know, owning your mistakes, doing what you, you say you're going to do can demonstrate care. What are some other ways that adults can demonstrate care for youth? Well, care is really easy. Um, uh, care is, as we say in the research world, operationalized uh, as time. So young people from a really early age figure out pretty quickly that um the scarcest commodity for adults is not money it's time so if you want to show a young person that you care about them you do it quite simply by spending time with them and um that's also it's so it's easiest to understand it's also incredibly challenging because time is the scarcest commodity that most adults have but that's the you know that that is it is a key ingredient and then on the listening front um I think it's really important to remember that most young people's dominant experience with adults is of being dismissed. You know, they, you may not feel like you dismiss young people, but that is how they feel when they encounter adults is, is ignored or not paid attention to. I mean, as a, as just a quick experiment, um, next time you're with your friends or their kids and their and you know, around any young person and their parents are in the room, I challenge you to ask the young person a question and see who gets to answer because more often than not, in my experience, like, uh, you know, we we're, we're at a dinner club. I love these people. I'll ask their nine-year-old uh, question is running around the house and the parent is right there and the parent will respond. You know, even if it's something intensely personal, like what, you know, tell me about that new Lego set you've got in your hands. And the parent will tell me like, you know, they'll chime in with like, Oh, grandpa got that for them. Cause they were just in town visiting. I'm like, Oh, I'm, you know, part of what I want to do is turn around and be like, I didn't mean to give you the impression I actually cared about the Lego set. I'm just trying to have a conversation with your nine-year-old, right? But you know, this is this is what young people tell us. Like, that's not just about being nine. That's the experience they have, you know, throughout their teenage years. I mean, I see this in my office even when I would have students come in and I would insist that in order to get their, their code to register, I would insist that they tell me what they want to do with their lives. And they hate that. They don't think I'm serious. You know, but I'll be like, what do you want to do with your life? And they're like, I don't know. I want to help people. Can I have my code now? And I'm like, no, tell me, uh, <laughs> I'll be like, tell me what that means for you to help people. And, and it's not until the second or third follow-up that they realize that you're serious because they're just so not used to this notion of an adult taking and, and, and it is hard because there's a thousand things going on 
you know, in the, in the, especially in a working life of it, even for an educator like me, where that is part of our job, there's a bunch, there's all, you know, emails coming in and all, but to take that 10 minutes to find out, um, you know, what's on your mind. And then, you know, I would take notes on it and I would ask them about it the next time I saw them. And it, it, it never took very long. Um, a lot of people have better memories than me. and wouldn't need to take notes about them, but it was, that was like the only way I could make it through. Um, but the listening is just, it's the, we put it first on the list because it's the most important. Yeah. If you, it, I would say that, you know, you, you probably, if, if you can only do one thing, you should listen. And if you don't listen, there's probably not much point in doing the others. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I like how in the example you gave, you know, not only are you genuinely interested in what your students want to do with their lives, um, but you're also like taking it in and and reserving judgment you know you're not jumping in like oh that's not how you should help people (laughs) (laughs) you know now we will i'll tell you we will get to that conversation though i mean you know because i've had and it's gone both ways where it's um there are times that i think a student is way underselling themselves especially Mm -hmm. when you know, I'll get a first generation, a lot of times female students, a lot of times first generation female non-white students in my office. And they'll they'll cap out what their ambitions are in ways that I think are, I get the sense after talking to them, you know, half a dozen times or so over a couple of years that I just sort of feel like maybe this is coming more from what they think is possible than what their actual abilities are. And so mm-hmm. I'll say, yeah, you could do that. Have you thought about being a lawyer? Because you know, I know what you can do. And um, it seems like you would be really interested in this. And you should maybe think about a law degree, you could definitely do the work. And and they maybe never had anybody in their lives who would tell them that after listening. So they'll they'll get this like blanket inspiration of like, you can be anything you want to be, or they've had teachers in high school say, anybody can be a lawyer, right? But they haven't often gotten that very specific kind of encouragement after somebody has taken the time to really get to know them so that they feel like, oh, well, if Josh is telling me that I could be a lawyer and he's been listening, like he knows me, like that is my expertise coming into play, which is that fifth element of the mm-hmm. relational authority, right? Instead of leading with that expertise, it's, you know, doing those other four things, establishing a relationship, building up trust, and then at, and, and then at, the, at a key moment, bringing in the expertise to say like, I know a lot of students who have gone on to get law degrees. I think you remind me a lot of them. I think you would like it based on the fact that you said X, Y, and Z. I'd love to help you explore that if you're interested. Mm. And all of a sudden, that's a much different conversation than somebody walking in and you saying, don't be a social worker, get a law degree. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, you know, because they're like, oh, who are, what are you? And it, I've, you know, I've had students on the other side who are like, I want to be a, you know, I want to I get a uh phd and such and such and i'm like slow down like i don't think you should like <laughs> you know like yeah but, yeah you know you've got all c's i'm not sure that getting a phd is in your future <laughs> but those conversations can only come in a productive way after again you've done all that other work sure. um, because i think what you learn in those conversations is that a lot of times what young people say is is a product of what the people around them have said and you can help them sort of discern and and do some really good work you know, once you've built that trust. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree completely. I think that's a great example. Um, I, I believe it was in Scott Coley's, uh, podcast, uh, faith philosophy and politics, um, Mm -hmm. that you, you and he talked a little bit about the eroding trust in institutions. Um, and it's well, researched and established that pretty much uh, trust among everyone or all groups is uh, diminishing but it seems to be especially low among millennials and gen z Um, and uh, i thought you and scott really hit the nail on the head it's not that we're cynical right Um, i'm an older millennial i'm a geriatric millennial Um, to use the new term yeah (laughs) i know i first heard that i thought oh my gosh um, so yeah, I'm I'm a geriatric millennial. I teach Gen Z. Uh, teach at Southeast Missouri State University in English. Wait, but first of all, can I say uh, that? Oh yeah, millennials. Millennials' response to being called geriatric millennial that is so, that that reveals so much ageism because the problem that they have there is with the term geriatric <laughs> and, and like this sort of pejorativeness around getting old in our culture. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, off my soapbox. Sure. Thing, you know, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, to me, it just like caught me totally off guard. Like, who yeah. who thought that we needed that 
label added on to millennial. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, so so as an older millennial and uh, who teaches a lot of Gen Z students, I, I thought you and Scott really hit the nail on the head when you said it's not that they're cynical. It's that they it's just the idea that banks or the government or church would do what's in their best interest or address things that benefit their lives. That's just not a thing. That just isn't an idea or a concept that they grew up holding. Um, or if they did, they held it fairly loosely where it got, you know, they became disillusioned of it. <laughs> yes. um, and so I'd love to hear you explain that a little bit more and just, you know, give some of your insights into, you know, why you think that is and what the implications are for us as churches or faith communities. Well, the implications are really easy. I mean, the, the implications are relational authority. So this is the transition that I was talking about is that when there's low trust in institutions, we have to find a different way of engaging with people besides sort of leading with those institutional you know, we've been around for this long, we are this big, I have degrees from this place. Those kind of institutional markers are, they don't mean anything to, to people anymore, especially young people. Um, and so we need like relationships, young people express a lot of high, very high levels of trust for people that they have relationships with. They, like the rest of our society and increasingly so, express very low trust for institutions. It's quite simple. Yeah. This is a trend that's been going on for 40 years now. Um, so it's not like Gen Z. I, mean, I think it's wrong to think about generations as containers. And, in, and instead, it's more accurate to think about them as sort of um, rivers, you know, where each generation is a stream that feeds into the overall, you know, we're all mm -hmm. all subject to the same kinds of fluctuations. It's just that some are more so. Um, so we've been seeing the decline of trust since the 1960s. Uh, but now we hit this moment where it's like, oh, we've got incredibly skeptical parents who have now raised incredibly skeptical kids. And that's why I think we see such a jump with Gen Z um, because now they're being raised by parents who also had, you know, and, and that's maybe the first time that has happened, right? So like largely my grandfather, for example, I'm 42, my grandfather raised my parents, but he, who, you know, they might've had some erosion in the confidence of institutions based on their own life experience, but at least their parents had a high, level of trust for those institutions um who and those institutions largely serve them well but now that you know my parents have raised me or you know a little bit younger parents who were subject to that even more it's um it's it's certainly a more pronounced issue and we don't see any there's nothing to suggest that it's turning around um that that somehow there's like you know what i would sometimes hear at least embedded in the conversations from religious leaders which is like oh shoot it seems like we lost this generation we'll get the next one that's that container thinking and like that there, that couldn't be more problematic i mean there's no there's no indicators out there that suggest that this is going to slow down anytime soon um or that somehow there's going to be a reversal and trend and people are going to come flocking back to these traditional places or these traditional kinds of frameworks yeah. and frankly you know, if we think about like, look, if you're, let's say you're 22 right now, 23, like, you know, square in the middle of this, uh, maybe at the upper end of Gen Z, you've experienced firsthand now in your relatively short, socially aware life, two significant recessions, the 2008 housing collapse, and the one that we're sort of bouncing around in right now from the pandemic, which is a weird sort of recession and that the stock market is doing fine, um, but lots of individual people have lost their jobs. So you might reasonably look around and, and I think come to a very rational conclusion that these institutions are not particularly effective. They don't actually have my best interests in mind. They couldn't even coordinate you know, a national plan around a pandemic, which of all things you would think that that's what a government should do. Um, so I don't think that it's an irrational position for them to take. Yeah. Uh, and, and what it means for churches is that, you know, we have to get more relational. We have to get more decentralized um, uh, and, and more, you know, sort of going back to what we talked about with church refugees. You have to get more contextual. You have to get more in it with them. Yeah. You know, if you were, say, six years old in 2008 and you've got your house paid off and yeah. you're, you know, a few years from retirement um, and you've got all your mutual fund and some, you know, low yield, but very safe investments, right. then, you know, the system worked out pretty well for you. And you probably have a lot of trust in institutions in general and the system as a whole. Um, 
if you're 30, you know, it's a different story. It's a totally different story, you know, or if you're 20 or if, if you were like me and you're just entering the job market, you know, it's a very yeah. different story. Um, and, you know, I mean, for years, I was like scared to invest any money in the stock market. Um, and I finally sure. kind of grudgingly established, you know, some retirement accounts and, and I try not to think about them. I try to just like blindly trust that the money yeah. will grow over time. Um, and so I think that's a great example or illustration of where, you know, one gen older generations and younger generations might react very differently to similar events, um, especially in relation to our trust in institutions or organizations. Um, and then, like you point out, you know, if you're, you know, 22 to 30, now you've experienced two of these major life-changing recessions and uh, social events, um, not to mention, you know, the Iraq war, um, not to mention Hurricane Katrina, right, sure. you know, Hurricane Katrina and several other events, you know, we could probably spend another hour discussing, um, you know, that erode people's faith and trust in organizations and institutions. And again, doesn't make them cynical. You know, I don't want any, I, I want to resist the tendency to say, oh, these young people today, you know, um, and instead acknowledge it's just the rational reaction to the reality we've experienced and observed. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. If ahead. anything, I would say that, you know, at Springtide, especially the way that we think about the, as we're analyzing the data that we collect among 13 to 25 year olds, the, the, Every once in a while, I'll do like a pulse check of like, how would you describe them? How would you describe them today? And and the words that consistently come up for us are um, doers, they're builders, they're explorers. Um, they, they don't they don't need institutions to do that work, and so they're gonna you know. Whereas I think you you might rightfully characterize millennials or Gen Xers as being deconstructors. That is just not what we see here with Gen Z, where. They're making you know they're heavily engaged in social justice movements, but not just in a protest way. Um, although protest is an important component of it, but they're also actively engaged in diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives to try and build more, in, you know, inclusive and equitable cultures. Uh, they are, you know, they are pressuring in good ways people to do um, to, to to be more open and expansive in their communities and in terms of how they think about their responsibility to the environment. Um, and there's a whole host of things. Uh, I'm, I've been really interested to see the ways that they build and construct religion outside of institutions, which is fascinating and at the same time completely not sustainable in my opinion, but that's not going to stop them from trying. And, and you know, the only real question is as religious leaders, are you going to be there with them or are you, are you going to be sort of on the sidelines? Because, you know, they're not coming through your door to do that work. Yeah. You, you know, you can go to them, but they're not coming through, through your door. Um, no, so I, I agree. Like, I don't find them to be cynical at all. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, to you, to your point, your work, you know, the relational authority seems to be so crucial because, you know, if you've got these people who just uh, young people who just don't even perceive institutions or organizations as authoritative or as, you know, serving their interests, but then you come in as an individual and you just mm -hmm. build that relationship and you listen and you uh, have integrity and transparency and you demonstrate care, you put yourself in the position of then becoming that authority that can guide them and direct them. Um, so yeah, I, I'm really excited about your work and your research and uh, we're just about out of time now and I wanna be respectful of your time. Um, so I'd like to finish up by um, giving you an opportunity to tell our listeners uh, where they can find you and your work and Springtide's work and how they can support that work. Yeah, thanks. Uh, mm -hmm. I appreciate it. It's been great to be on. A, it's, it's, it's been a good conversation. Yeah. Um, you, you can find Springtide at springtideresearch.org. And there you can see all of our research, our latest reports. Um, we've got some stuff we've been able to raise some funds for some products they're free and others are available for purchase uh you can find it you can find me on social media i'm at uh dr dr uh josh packard on twitter um and i'd love to love to hear any thoughts from from any of your listeners great thank you so much josh i really appreciate your time uh, enjoy the rest of your day so there you have it um, I really enjoyed that conversation with Josh, and I hope that you found a lot of helpful information. Um, I know that for me, as someone who works with youth or has worked with youth in the past, I can see a lot of 
what Josh was describing and how I relate to and interact with younger people. You know, I too um, intuitively or naturally, or maybe just from the experience of having been a teacher for my whole career, I do try to relate to people and demonstrate care and listening and integrity and transparency. Um, and then also, you know, I really want to hear from them. You know, my students, you know, are Gen Z at this point, and I want to hear what they think about ideas. I'm asking them questions, not because I want them to give me the right answer, but because I want them to think critically and I want to have them express those thoughts. And then, and uh, I've often told my students, my favorite parts of teaching are when I feel like I'm learning from my students. Um, and so I think that um, having had that experience and that mindset, that I, I like to think that I embody some of these characteristics of relational authority that we, I listen to younger people, I show that I care about them, I admit my mistakes, I uh, share my experiences in age-appropriate and person-appropriate ways when um, I think it might be helpful to them or useful to them. But I'm sure I also uh, have messed up many times. <laughs> and so I really hope that this uh, conversation I have with Josh will help you in your work with young people to um, create that relational authority where you fill that role that young people need and want um, and you create that trust in you as an individual and a person and, and the trust in that relationship which then creates that kind of micro community within the larger faith community and thus helps to keep those young people um relating to the church and to the community in which we pursue God and grow closer to God. Because that's really, I think, how we're built and how we're intended to commune with God ultimately. You know, we're not, uh, we're social creatures, as Josh said, and we're just not really meant to try to grow alone. Uh, there might be a season where we grow alone, but overall in the course of our lives, you know, I believe um, we need to be connected to a faith community and many young people find themselves unconnected or disconnected because they never develop those kinds of relationships with other people in their faith community um, maybe they develop relationships with other youth and then they all move away you know um, and then they also have no experience in kind of recreating those relationships in new faith communities right um, so I really hope that this idea of relational authority will help us as we engage in our youth programming this fall and Wednesday Night Live and other things that we do um, to try to uh, build those relationships and those connections and, that, and create those communities and those um, trusting relationships. So thank you very much for listening. And God bless. <laughs>